Hey, everyone. We have Oak Reed with us today. He is a licensed clinical psychologist, and we'll be talking about gender diversity in kids and tweens and how research demonstrates that parents can be the most helpful in responding when their kids are exploring different gender identities. Oak is very knowledgeable. He's warm. He's smart. He's exceptionally helpful to me as a clinician and as a friend to parents and as a parent myself. I think y'all are really going to like this episode and please share it if you think it's helpful for anybody else. Thanks so much. And we hope you're having a good day. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? (laughs) Yours. (laughs) Let's walk through this together. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, everybody. It is just me, Amanda, here today, and our newest clinician at Virginia Family Therapy, Oak Reed. I am super excited. Hi, Oak. Hey. Guys, let me tell you a little bit about Oak and what we're going to talk about today. So Oak is a clinical psychologist who specializes in athletes, anxiety, and gender diverse individuals. He also specializes in people and families adjusting to new medical diagnoses. And today we are going to be talking about how should parents respond to children exploring their gender? And we're going to talk about it at all ages, like kids and teens and tweens and everything in between. I have found Oak to be like a wealth of knowledge and I absolutely appreciate it. And he's like in it as a personality because he's super kind and warm and also knows the literature, which I always find super helpful. So let's just get into it. How are you, Oak, on your first day at Virginia Family Therapy? Yeah, I'm doing spectacular. The sun is shining. It's a a new opportunity to work with you all and a topic that I really enjoy both personally and professionally talking about and something that people have asked me questions kind of throughout time um, in regards to how to how to address kind of needs for their kids that are exploring their gender as well as, you know, their, their teens and their uh, adult children or so on. So, you know, bring on the questions. Okay. So can we start at the very, very beginning of kind of kids playing, little kids playing, toddlers playing, because I've raised toddlers and five-year-olds. And it seems to me like kids are playing a lot of different ways when they are when they are young. And so can you talk to me around what that looks like for what that looks like and how parents should really be thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the first things first, like kind of go into the science. I mean, the developmental literature says that gender identity develops around the age of two or three, if not earlier. Although we as adults can't always remember those memories that's often when that is becoming more concrete because we're observing others. We're learning gender norms from society, from our culture. And so that's going to manifest sometimes in play. And that's where you might see people playing roles of like mom and dad, or they're playing house, or they might just have access to certain types of toys. Um, What we want to be paying attention to is just the persistence and consistency with someone's play. 
because there's going to be a difference between like playing house and maybe you have, you know, was born male plays the mom one time, but maybe it was a one-off time and they, they've never done it again. It doesn't seem like a role that suited them. It doesn't seem like that was something that really was resonating with them. So, you know, that's something to maybe take a mental note as a parent on and just observe that and see if things like that happen again. But it's going to be those kids that are consistently playing roles of perhaps the opposite gender or playing with toys that are quote unquote gender stereotyped. Um, when they're consistent with that, and they're persistent at wanting you to purchase those type of clothes or toys from the stores. Um, and they're insistent that maybe that is how they identify with. So it's the consistency, persistence, and insistence. When that is a common theme is where we really want to lean in with both our eyes, our ears, and our language of asking more and more questions about that. Um, Because that's when we might have a child that identifies somewhere within the gender spectrum. And it's not just, you know, the binary male and female, but there's so much vastness that exists on some, some degree of a continuum. Can you talk about, I should have started this podcast with like, what is gender diversity and what is the gender spectrum? Like you just threw that out there and yeah, just, just give us a broad look at that too. Yeah. So there's a difference between sex and gender, right? And that's, I think, a good place to start because those terms are used often interchangeably, although they mean very different things. So starting with sex, sex is based on our anatomy, our chromosomes, our hormonal compositions. So we typically think of that as male and female. Um, So when we think about like anatomy, we're thinking internal and external genitalia, we're thinking of penises and vaginas. And that's what the doctor looks to when a baby's delivered, notices one thing or the other, and then shouts out, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl. Um, or we have these reveal parties for that based on sonograms. And although we call those gender reveal parties, they're really sex reveal parties mm-hmm. because they're looking at our observable genitalia, or perhaps with modern technology, they're able to know what the chromosomes are of that baby. So we're thinking XX for females and XY for males. And then there's, of course, like testosterone, estrogen involved, and so on. There are more sex manifestations that aren't as common or aren't as familiar. So there might be different chromosomal abnormalities like XXY or XXX. Um, And those are going to look different behavioral and physical things as a child is born. But typically, when I think of sex, I think of the binary, the male and female based on our like physical traits. Do you know what percentage of folks are born with like XXX or XXY, one of those genuine non-binary chromosomal patterns? Sorry, hard question. Off the top of my head, I don't know what the actual percentage is for that presentation. I can say it's it's a lower percentage, of course, compared to people that are born with XXXY. Um, what I can tell you is people that are born kind of outside of the the sex versus gender combination. So people who have a different gender identity than the sex they were assigned at birth. So that's where we're getting into the the transgender or gender diverse presentations. The estimations are kind of across the board. And the reason being is that we don't always ask those questions on the census data, on surveys, 
early medical studies didn't always document different chromosomal compositions because it was seen as odd, eccentric. Families maybe had embarrassment around that. And so there's kind of haphazard documentation of people that actually were born that way. And so the estimates can be from anywhere as like a, you know, rarity of a 0.1% to potentially five to 10 to 12% of the population. So regardless, it's a smaller subset of the general population, but our estimates are pretty varied because of the lack of focus on that um, early on, really. So what you're saying is that we don't have a number of folks that identify as gender diverse, right? You're saying it's 0.1 yeah, to 10%. It's, it's, so we don't know. Yeah, it's quite varied. Um, I think as research continues and we're more and more comfortable talking about it, like now, uh, as well as families sharing their stories with researchers or with other families and learning about one another, that that estimate of the actual number of people that kind of identify across that spectrum, whether it's because of the physical differences with the chromosomes or the just mismatch between sex and gender, um, we're getting to know more and more about that. So my hunch is that it's actually incredibly more prevalent than what we ever have estimated before. And if we think about it, and if everyone who's listening thinks about, have I ever met someone who identifies as gender diverse? I bet you there's each person can think of at least one. And if we all then come together and know at least one or more, that's already blowing some of those estimates out of the water. What's important and what you've asked about too is gender diversity. And so the difference between the sex piece and the gender piece, the sex is that, you know, physical driven things, the chromosomes, the anatomy, gender is more of a mental definition. So it's some, it's a way that we describe how we identify. So the way I think about kind of a, a silly way to think about it is that sex is between the legs and gender is between the ears. Oh, gender I love is only, that. only for us to describe. And it's a very mental identity that is manifested in different ways and mannerisms and clothes and play and talk and professions, you know, in different ways in life um, that that manifests, but it's only described by that individual. It's a mental gender identity. When that matches our mental gender identity and our physical sex, that is a the term to describe that is cisgender. So someone who identifies as cisgender physically and mentally, their, their identities align. When those don't align, when their anatomy at birth doesn't match with the gender that they currently identify with, that's when someone identifies often as transgender or gender diverse. And the terminology, to be honest, is something that is growing and growing and growing. So Asking a kid, you know, back in the 90s, there might have been only one word like transgender, transsexual, or people might have even used the term transvestite, which that can be a whole other slew of conversation to talk about the, the language that's developed over time. But you ask a kid now that, you know, maybe born in 2017 or 2015, they're going to have so many different ways to describe gender identity that... I think is going to continue to grow. So just even to throw some out there, there might be transgender, there might be trans um, questioning, there might be gender binary, there might be gender nonconforming, there might be gender queer, there might be 
um, gender expressive, gender unicorn. Like there, there are so many terms to describe that now. So that's where it's very important to kind of ask kids that might be navigating and leaning more towards that consistency, that insistency and so on. How do you identify? Like, tell me what's going on in your mind. Like, do you not feel like your body matches how you think about yourself? You know, those are good initial inquiries into getting into the minds, which, like I said, when it comes to gender, only we can describe it. I love to Oak just thinking about kids because I'm so I'm 41 and I have three kids, right? 10, eight, and five. And my 10 year old at 10, right? He is so he he is so beautiful in the way he talks about gender diversity already. And they're just they they so many kids are so accepting and way ahead of me. My 10-year-old, I'm pretty liberal in the world. My 10-year-old is like on it. I asked him about a text chain the other day and I was like, oh, is it just girls and you? And he was like, no, it's you know, just girls and me and X person's name, you know, they're just like on it and it's nothing to them. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I can appreciate you saying like, Hey, I'm liberal. And I think that my children are beautiful. And I think there are so many people who maybe don't, um, in the sense that because there's so many cultural expectations, religious expectations, generational expectations that sometimes as adults can cloud our understanding of others. And so those ways that we were raised might influence how we respond to a child's openness about things. You know, like, what are you talking about? This person's using they, them pronouns, like that's plural. That can't describe an individual, you know, and we then kind of have our expectations, our learnings and upbringings influencing us embracing the children. And then the children then being like, well, gosh, if my mom and dad are questioning this, like, what, what should I, what should I believe what's natural to me or what, what they're saying to me? Um, so yes, I think we can learn a lot from the generation now because they're in it, they're mm-hmm. learning it. They're totally accepting it. Because if you think about really early on kids that are exploring their gender through clothing, through play, they could give two shits about who is judging them because they are just embracing it and they have no maybe cultural expectations or um, ways that they've been socialized in one way or another. And so we can learn a lot from that very kind of carefree navigation. And if we're able to foster that, then that's going to lead to a bravery and grit and resilience that's going to really carry them throughout life as opposed to resistance, fear, um, and self-judgment that could stunt their growth and then have so many other repercussions throughout their developmental trajectory. And I think I'm getting so off topic, guys. We're really going to get down to the kids, I promise. But I think I think one of the things that's hard for parents, because this is what happens to me, like I'm having a lot of friends who are calling who are like pretty progressive, you know, think we all think we're really open to like all of the things, you know, and then they have their kids say, hey, I identify as a, you know, as a they, them. And there's, I guess there's a different process that I'm seeing. And I think it's shaking people. I guess I think it's shaking people. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like the experience as a parent, not 
not that you would know because you're not a parent, but like what you've seen clinically. Yeah. I think that sometimes that just hesitation of fully embracing it, it can stunt the ability to just roll with the punches, go with the flow with what these kids are saying. And so I think sometimes taking a step back and first of all, just saying like, why am I uncomfortable? Like, why is this shaking me? And then checking in of like, is this really going to be a bad thing if I use they, them for my kid for the rest of their life or for the time being as they explore things? And probably the answer is no, it's not going to be a problem. I think the biggest fear that I've noticed when parents have approached me or family members of, you know, their siblings that have kids that have a gender explorative person, the biggest fear is, am I going to reinforce this? And if this, you know, what people think is this might just be a phase. So if I'm going in and saying, using they, them pronouns or buying new clothes or buying new toys, am I going to reinforce this? And then I'm reinforcing something that maybe isn't authentic to my child. And what I have to say about that is that positive reinforcement is positive reinforcement. Like it's just going to be something that's encouraging a person to just be them. It's not necessarily going to positively reinforce them into a a realm or trajectory or identity that isn't authentic to them. What it's really just going to communicate is, Hey, we love you. We support you. And we're going to be with you through this journey. So I think that fear that they're going to create quote unquote, someone that identifies as a gender diverse individual, and they're going to reinforce this potentially like very difficult lifestyle. And what I would say is don't worry about that. Because if someone's leading an authentic life, they're very clear of how they identify, whether it's a three-year-old saying this, a 10-year-old saying this, or a 20-year-old saying this, by providing that unconditional positive regard and unconditional love and support, that's what's going to be the most important. And I've never heard of any cases where someone has pushed something on a child and that that reinforcement has gone the wrong way. And that that's led to more issues. So, you know, just embracing and not being fearful of that is, I think, a really good piece of advice for any of those parents. Can I reframe a little bit and tell me if this is right, Oak? Yeah. Maybe if you, it's okay to be scared, right? Like, they're, of course, they're scared because parenting is scary, like in so many ways. Like a kid getting a C on a test can feel scary to some parents. Do you know what I'm saying? So maybe it's yeah. like, own your fear, own your anxiety. You don't necessarily have to put that on your kid because all that's going to do is just create, you know, a tougher relationship between you and your kid. And that's probably the last thing you want. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think there can be therapeutic outlets for both the kid to process things, family members to process things. Like that's a safe space to say like, Hey, I'm like freaking out. I don't know if I'm doing anything right. Like that's a great place to check in, whether it's through a therapeutic space or through other family members or groups of folks that also have gender diverse children. But I completely agree to, you know, that it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be fearful because anything that our child goes through that we know might lead to difficult roads ahead of them, whether that be someone saying like, Hey, I want to join the NFL. And you're like, Oh, your chance is really slim to none, but yet (laughs) we're going to support that. You know, not to say that that's the same as someone who identifies as gender diverse, 
But that's also going to come with its unique, you know, road ahead of them of how they navigate that. Um, so kind of thinking about all of the curveballs that the kids might throw, that might be one of them. But absolutely, like you're saying, embrace that fear, process that, um, but also create a space to talk about it and and discuss how that impacts the family and what they can best do to support them. What do they need in that moment to best support them? And if that's using certain pronouns, if that's letting them wear certain clothes, um, talk about what that how that feels. And I think being upfront and and being a model of like, it's okay, I'm scared too, uh, can go a long way with just maintaining that relationship with the child too. So I am almost thinking like, if you have a tween who says parents, like I identify as they, them. And a lot of times kids now are like Googling too. So they'll be like, I'm struggling with gender dysphoria, right? So they're like using the language and can you define gender dysphoria for us? Yeah, gender dysphoria, it's evolved over time. And so gender dysphoria is the current like DSM diagnosis. How that presents is typically discomfort with how someone's sex assigned at birth doesn't match with how they mentally identify. So there's this discomfort with their current anatomy. There might be discomfort with certain conventions around how that sex, that female or male, typically it's talking about the binary category is supposed to like go to the bathroom or social manners that they might um, be expected to engage in. It's going to be this continued belief that that will be resolved at some point in time. So to summarize it in general, gender dysphoria is like this discomfort with the way that their body might be in conjunction with their mind. Now, there's going to be a difference in how that experience is between someone who wants to pursue like any surgical or hormonal type things, but there also might be some degree of discomfort with their body and mind that they may not want to pursue any transition, like physical transition. And that's where gender dysphoria doesn't adequately totally capture the nuances of the gender spectrum that we were early talking about, the ICD, so the medicalized diagnostic manual talks about this as called gender incongruence. So it's one of those like history things where the DSM, the, the thing that the mental health professionals use and what the medical providers use with the ICD has never actually used the same diagnostic category, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but largely to say it's just this discomfort with how someone is expected to maybe lead their life is a good way to put it. So when kiddos and, and you know, tweens or whoever are using the word gender dysphoria, what they're communicating to parents or older individuals that they respect, whether it's a teacher or a coach, it's just them communicating like, I'm kind of going through a, a period where I'm not maybe experiencing my sex and my gender in the right way. And I'm exploring it. I'm trying to figure out what's right. Like, does this mean I want to change things about my body? Um, or does it mean that I just need to figure out who I am in regards to how I want to describe myself to other people with different pronouns or a different name? Um, so there are different kind of layers to how a person might navigate their gender, both as a child and a teen or a tween, and also as an adult. And how do parents know if their kid is saying, like, you know, I'm experiencing gender dysphoria, or I'm really uncomfortable with my body, I'm really uncomfortable with, like, 
my, my genitalia, right? How do they know if it's because of, you know, they're gender diverse or if they are experiencing just puberty? Because puberty is scary for kids. So how do you talk to parents about that? And how do you think about that? Right. Puberty is scary and it's not fun. It's awkward. And so imagine someone who really doesn't feel like they're in the right body going through then the puberty stage, which is already uncomfortable for tweens in the, in the beginning, but then going through puberty in the, in the, in the wrong body and expecting to have these parallel experiences with how they identify. So let's say it's someone who was born female, assigned female at birth, identifies as male and then is having to go through female puberty while their male counterparts are, you know, their voices dropping, they're starting to get facial hair. Those are going to be the telltale signs, right? Of a parent observing, like, are you uncomfortable just because it's puberty or are you expecting things to change that aren't changing? Are you really hoping that your voice would drop, that you would get facial hair? Like, is that where you would expect your body to be changing versus developing breast tissue versus having a menstrual cycle? Those are kind of clarifying questions that a parent could ask of, you know, is your body changing and adapting in a way that is just kind of uncomfortable and scaring you? Or is it so devastating that um, you can't fathom continuing to go on this way? And so those are going to be some very telltale signs of someone who really feels that their sex assigned at birth was absolutely wrong. People that might identify outside of kind of that binary transition, so kind of just outside of the traditional male and female, and then transitioning within that, those are quite frankly, a little bit more difficult to navigate. um, Because there might be individuals who are saying like, you know, I don't really want to change anything about my body. I'm not certain how I want my body to appear down the line. Like if I want breasts or not, or if I want facial hair or not, or if I want long hair or short hair, but just, I think that that's where a continued conversation around, um, how can we best support you? Like what might that look like in regards to clothes in regards to pronouns that we're using in regards to other kind of social things like names is a gender neutral name, or if someone were Samantha, just going by Sam or figuring out other unique ways to affirm who they are while they're navigating their body changing can be, if it's an open dialogue, I think is the best way to navigate those who um, it's not clear if it's about their body or not. But for those who it's very clear that it's discomfort with their body, that's where it's really helpful to have noticed that early on, that consistency, persistency uh, trajectory that I first was talking Mm -hmm. about. And if that's the case, and that's also leading into puberty or even right before puberty, where they're very anxious and they're anticipating puberty to happen because they're noticing their peers are going through that. That's where you want to rope in the pediatrician and talk about that early on to say like, what are some options that we have? Um, because there are hormone blockers that exist where there's a lot of fear around like early medical interventions of like, do I need my child to go through surgery? Like, do we need to start on medications? Well, blockers are kind of the saving grace for a lot of parents because it quite literally just blocks puberty. It just delays puberty. And I'm not a, I'm not a pediatrician. I don't have a medical degree, so I can't speak to, you know, too much around the medicalized side of it. But what I can say is that most parents feel and, and children feel a sigh of relief of being able to just kind of put a glorified pause on that 
let their body stay naturally the way it is in a prepubescent stage, and then to explore their gender even more. Would it make sense if they were to then transition physically to the sex that they identify as? Or as they were on a pause and their peer cohort develops and they're like, you know what? No, like I, I don't want my body to change. I'm okay with it changing in that trajectory. Then you just stop the blockers and they would develop as their body would naturally have just a little bit later in life compared to their peer cohort. So that's kind of getting into the weeds of like what the actual transition process could look like for those who maybe want to physically transition but there are a lot of tools that are pretty readily accessible nowadays compared to back in the day that parents can pursue. So one question I have, and you were talking about it is, is say you have a kid who, who has been like, I think right now, as I raise boys, I am throwing so many stereotypically traditionally girl items at them because I'll be damned if I have a boy who's not supporting women when they grow up. Right. And so they have to be able to hold the babies and clean the kitchen and and explore whatever they want to explore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so because we're providing so many different opportunities for kids when they're younger, probably, can you just talk about that? So, so how do you know when you have a tween who says, you know, I think I'm the opposite gender, talk about what the consistency looks like and how you make that those decisions about what to do then. I mean, I think what you're doing is wonderful, right? To just kind of not have any gendered stereotypes as much as possible, like for our kids as they're growing up to recognize that like historically there might've been these stereotypical roles of child rearing or jobs that might've been more gendered than others. And that kind of gets back to our earlier talk about where people might be fearful of like, am I reinforcing something? Like, I don't know if you've ever had a fear of by throwing kind of feminine things at your boys, if like they're then going to say, mom, I actually think I might identify as a woman because you've given me all these women, um, you know, stereotypes. I've always wanted a girl. Anybody listening who knows me is going to be like, oh, you're, you are doing that on purpose. I'm just kidding. Everybody. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Right. But at the end of the day, you're not going to change your, your child's minds if they're like. I identify as a male, but you're you're giving them so many opportunities. But if you are to reflect on your child's developmental trajectory, I imagine from what I'm hearing from you, and I don't know your kids, but maybe one day I'll meet them. They probably have been pretty consistently aligning in male-like behavior and using labels that reflect their male identity um, being comfortable with their genitalia, exploring their genitalia in different ways. Um, never like asking about like, what would it be like to have a vagina or mom? You know, I don't know if like this anatomy is correct. Had that been the case, like, let's say you saw your boys, you know, really leaning more towards dressing up in dresses, tucking their penis between their legs, because, they thought that that might be neat to have genitalia that looked like that, or they had tub time with, you know, a female, maybe they had a sister or a cousin. And they're like, that actually makes more sense to me. And that's honestly one of those magical things that it's really not well understood of like, 
because a lot of questions are, well, how, how can you trust that they know that that genitalia is wrong? And like, all I can say is you just got to trust these kids. Cause even if they never had an example of what the opposite genitalia might've looked like, or maybe they did have an example of an exposure through like tub time or, you know, so on and so forth that they just innately know just as much as any of us who maybe haven't questioned our gender, you could maybe reflect back and say like, well, how did you know that you liked your penis or you liked your vagina? I'm sorry that this is a lot of penis and vagina talk, but like it naturally just comes with this topic. But like, if you think, oh yeah, I guess I've never questioned that. Well, then we got to trust those who have questioned it to say like, they just innately knew that something was wrong, um, innately knew that something was missing. And so those are going to be the telltale signs, right? If it, if it were your boys saying like tucking their penis between their legs, saying like, mom, I think I want a vagina. Mom, I want more dresses. Mom, like I want to carry a child, someone who has a baby in their tummy like you did. Um, though that's going to be the consistency that will lead into the tweens era where then there needs to be, whether it's the kid brings it up, which nowadays, honestly, it's probably going to be more of that. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, I've heard that there's these blockers. I got some friends that are on them. I think that's what I need. Like that honestly might be the conversation nowadays, or it might be more on the parents end to say, you know, I've noticed your whole life. Like you've kind of identified more this way. Like, let's talk about it. Are you fearful of going through the puberty that, you know, people that are signed the sex at birth, like you will go through? Is that what you want? Or do you feel like you would be more appropriate to go through, you know, fill in the blank gender typed puberty? So those are going to be either the kid's going to bring it up. And like I said, nowadays, that's probably going to be more of the, the common trajectory, or that's going to be where a parent could really interject and say like, look, this is probably on the horizon for you. What can we do to support this? And then, like I said, roping in a pediatrician to get their opinion on what can we do to either buy some time to let them really explore their identity before doing any like I'll say irreversible, but it's not really irreversible changes because some things can be reversible, especially with modern medicine, but before going down to surgeries or so on, but that's going to be the trajectory. And it's not going to always be in a very like expected or stepwise or like, you know, stage one, it's this stage two, it's that it's going to be a little different for each person, but those are going to be the telltale things of the stereo like the the play that they engage in the clothing that they want the way that they describe them with names nicknames pronouns whether they even know what a pronoun means or not but how they refer to them themselves are going to be the the consistency to look for i love that like i had actually maybe this is totally on me but i had never using different roles and names for yourself as a toddler seems to me very different than I know a lot of boys who wear dresses, like wearing dresses is fun. Those princess, like the dresses are beautiful. I, you know, they're great. I want to try them on too. But I do think it seems to me like there's something different about, you know, using your own pronoun, calling yourself a she, being really curious about the other gender at a young age. And that increased and consistent curiosity really seems to be the important one. So let me say, I have two other questions. They're really important. So the other things I want to talk about is really if your kid says this to you and you know that they actually have no consistency, 
right? Like, you know that they haven't been consistent over time. How should parents respond? Like, what's your thought on that? I'll say the likelihood of someone just kind of saying that without any consistency is probably going to be lower. Um, Just given like what we know research wise, what we know from like longitudinal studies of watching cohorts of kids um, go through this process, both cisgender identified, trans or diverse identified, the consistency is likely going to be there. However, like there could be a lot of factors that lead into maybe those individuals either kind of more covertly engaging in those behaviors because of maybe social factors or family factors or so on. So if all of a sudden, you know, they say like, Hey, I think I identify that way this way, then, you know, I think just engaging in a, in a reflective type conversation could be helpful of like, you know, tell me more about this. Like how long have you been having these thoughts? Cause like, there's a chance that that kid could have had those thoughts for a long time that maybe they were just terrified or very scared for different reasons. Maybe they had a very aversive experience outside of the home. Um, They saw a kid get bullied because they had talked about that openly in school. And they thought, oh my gosh, if I ever express these thoughts, that's going to be my reality, which could be the case. And so they learned to just internalize it, right? And they never um, shared that or manifest that in certain ways. So I think, you know, a healthy degree of curiosity and sensitivity can be a good approach of, you know, thank you for sharing this with us. Like, tell me how long you've had these thoughts. What are some ways that, you know, you've been thinking about this? Is it related to, you know, ways that you want to dress, ways that you want to be called? Um, Have you like thought about your changes to your body? I think that those could be some really good sensitive starting points to ask about that. If it is very abrupt and kind of new and everyone seems to be caught off guard, you're like, gosh, you've been in like a, you know, incredibly supportive family, incredibly supportive environment. And it seems like really out of the blue. Then just, I think, you know, naming that saying, you know, this sounds like a very new thing to you. What does this mean? You know, where, where, like, tell me more what you know about this. You know, I think just that healthy curiosity, but with a very positive reinforcing tone can be a starting point to just get a little bit more in their head of, are they, you know, I, like I said, I don't have kids, so I don't know how much kids like test the waters with parents just to see how they'll react. Like, Hey mom, I, you know, I identify this way, or what would you say if I told you this, you know, maybe it's just a kid testing the waters to see about a parent's responsiveness but it also could be just the first time that they're developing that identity. And which, although I said up front that it may be very low likelihood if there isn't that consistency piece, but knowing that identity development is a very ongoing process, that there are adults that sometimes for the first time realize that they identify as gender diverse or sexual diverse because they just learn and have different lenses in life, that it isn't it isn't out of the realm that someone could have just developed it later on because they've learned more language and they realize, you know what, this gender non-binary actually jives with how I think about myself. And as they've been exposed to more things and really start to critically think about their own identities and how they develop and how they fit in the world, that could be a place where they're just wanting to explore it and want their family's lens and insight into that. So I think just that healthy curiosity as one really key component, and then just ongoing support of an open, open dialogue 
would be the keys to really supporting that new thing that could be brought up. Because what you're saying is being supportive and warm about it is not going to reinforce gender diversity. All it's going to reinforce is love for your kid. And that's the ultimate goal, no matter what their gender is, right? Right. By you saying like, let's talk about this. I love you regardless. You're not going to change their identity. You're not going to force them into that or yeah, like reinforce that in a way that's opposite of them or something. It's just going to say, you have an open, you know, open line of communication about how this identity development continues to unfold. So absolutely. And there's no harm in it. And if you're a parent and you feel scared, it's okay to say those things and inside be terrified, right? But you should go to someone else yeah, absolutely. and talk about those feelings of being fearful so that you can be there for your kid would be my thought. Whether it's a friend, a pediatrician, a therapist, a support group, are there support groups for parents? Yeah. There's historically PFLAG. It was originally parents for lesbian and gay identified uh, children, but PFLAG has broadened. And although they've kept the name just because of the, the history behind it and just it's a kind of identifiable group, it is a, if you just go to like PFLAG or go on Google and look up PFLAG or it's PFLAG.com or PFLAG.org, but there's a lot of groups for parents of gender, sexual minority individuals that you can connect online or find local chapters. And I'm sure I'm newer to Charlottesville, so I can't speak broadly for groups that might exist, but there's not a shortage now across the globe of ways to connect with other families that are going through very similar experiences. So absolutely connecting, you know, understanding how other parents are responding Processing that fear with other family members, you know, or other parents that are going through that can be a very powerful learning experience too. Here's the thing I'm going to say, and I didn't, this was not the intention of this podcast, by the way, but I am going to say that if, that if I encounter this as a parent, Oak, I'm calling you (laughs) like you are the person I want to talk to because you, you have a lot of data, you have a lot of warmth, you have a lot of understanding And I just appreciate, I just appreciate your ability to talk about it. So I think it would also, are you okay? Again, this was not the point of the podcast, but are you okay if people reach out to you for you to help walk them, parents or kids through this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll share that because this is my, you know, line of research and a clinical interest of mine. And it's been that way for quite some time that I get inquiries from people often. Um, and I've done trainings on this topic for both families, for healthcare agencies, because unfortunately, the uh, mental health and physical health worlds have been not always the safest spaces for families and individuals that identify this way. And so it's been one of my missions to make it a more safe and affirmative space. And so certainly, reaching out via email or whatnot to clarify questions. I am absolutely open to that because the number one thing that I see is that when we don't understand how to support people, whether it's our children, our family member, our friend, we live in the fear of the unknown. And when we're in, when we are fearful, often our prejudices, our potential discriminatory behaviors come about um, because we don't know what to do. And when we 
are engaging in like stigma, prejudice, discrimination, that then leads to this cyclical cycle of individuals avoiding people because they're fearful of how they're going to respond or they're, you know, scared to talk about different things, which when people are not socially engaging or engaging in like mental health or physical health realms, then they often are, they're experiencing health disparities. They're engaging in poor coping mechanisms like substance use or self-harm behaviors, which then perpetuates a cycle. There's more stigma and discrimination and prejudice against them because they don't have maybe these safe outlets or people don't proactively understand who they are and how to support them. So we need to break that cyclical cycle by understanding and having these, you know, healthy conversations of what to do. And so I'm more than happy to be a person to process, to be a sounding board or to just give any quick tips. Certainly. And how can people reach you? People can reach me through email. I don't know if you have a link with the podcast, but reaching me at oread at virginiafamilytherapy.com would be the best method or searching our website and finding any of our contact information there. And that's O-R-E-E-D, O-R-E-E-D. Perfect. And Oak is available. He's working out of the Charlottesville East office, but also is available via teletherapy for across Virginia. So that's the good news. Thank you all so much for listening. Oak, I learned so much, like so much. I feel really helped. So I really appreciate it. I think you probably helped a lot of people too a lot of my friends. So I'm just like glad you shared your wisdom with us. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye y'all. See ya.